Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Sophia Ramos speaks with sociology professor Charles Kurzman. In their conversation, Professor Kurzman discusses his latest book, the second edition of The Missing Martyrs, Why Are There So Few Muslim Terrorists? As well as his latest commission report entitled Muslim American Involvement with Violent Extremism, 2001 to 2018, published January 22nd, 2019. Thank you for joining us today. How are you doing? Well, thanks. Doing thanks well? for having me. Yes, of course, of course. So from what I understand, you've been at UNC since 2008, is that correct? Actually, much longer than much that. Much longer than that. Yeah, okay, 1998. Okay. 1998. Okay, yeah. I was just only a little bit off. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> I, I got my 20-year plaque uh, offered to me last year. Okay. Very exciting. Congratulations. Made it all worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so 1998, um, you're a professor of sociology. Can you just tell me a little bit about the courses you teach and kind of the research that you do? Sure, sure. Uh, so I teach uh, social theory. Uh, I teach... Uh, course on the sociology of Islam because my work is primarily in Middle East and Islamic studies. Uh, I co-direct the, the Carolina uh, Center for Middle East and Islamic Studies. I try to be active uh, in promoting uh, Middle East and Islamic studies all across the campus, both in coursework and language study and in the various uh, disciplines across the social sciences and the humanities. What is most important for students and young people to know about sociology or the humanities, and what value do you think that kind of adds to their coursework? Uh, I uh, am a big believer in the, the crossover between the arts and humanities and the social sciences uh, and the ways in which we can inform one another. Uh, the uh, interpretive approaches of the humanities, the deep engagement with materials and uh, with cultures, uh, and on the other hand, the systematic approaches within social sciences, uh, big data, uh, statistics. Uh, I don't see them as, as really separate, but as informing each other. And so I, my work ranges all over methodologically. Uh, so for myself and then what I try to teach my students is that you follow uh, wherever the big question is, you go follow the evidence uh, wherever it leads. And if that's going and digging in archives and, and uh, finding historical material, uh, if it's learning languages and doing field work and interviewing folks and getting to know them, or if it's uh, finding data sets that are relevant to something and running statistical analyses, it's all good. Uh, and, and so I uh, encourage my students, both at the, the undergraduate level and, uh, and at the graduate level, to do what we call in the social sciences mixed methods, meaning do it all. Follow it whichever way you can. So beyond being a professor, you're also an author. And you're most recently with, with your book, The Missing Martyrs, Why There Are So Few Muslim Terrorists. And so this was originally published in two, 2011, correct? Yeah, yeah. And so there's a revised edition that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, came out last month or in November? Exactly. Okay. Uh, it is uh, updated for the age of ISIS. Okay. And can you tell me kind of what led you to writing this initial book and then why you felt like you needed a revised edition? Right. It, it, well, terrorism, of course, is so central in the politics of the United States and global politics. Uh, and after uh, the attacks of September 11, 2001, uh, somebody who studies the Middle East and uh, Islamic movements 
uh, I found myself being asked uh, in public forums by students and colleagues, uh, by media, uh, what's going on? And, and are, should we be expecting attacks like 9-11 all the time now? Uh, are these movements gaining gaining force? Uh, and and you know, what kind of a threat is there now for this global conflict? And uh, so I uh, started, I wasn't an expert on al-Qaeda, uh, but started to study uh, the, the al-Qaeda and related movements. Uh, my, my original focus had been on the Iranian revolution, so a different kind of Islamic movement, mm-hmm. um, not uh, speaking Arabic, uh, speaking Persian in Iran, uh, Shia movement, not Sunni, so a different uh, uh denomination, a sect within Islam, uh, and a mass popular uprising against the Shah in 1978-79 that led to the overthrow of the monarchy, uh, rather than these very small uh, operations that were being conducted by uh, al-Qaeda and its folks. So time went by, and I started to publish uh, academic uh, work uh, on terrorism, Islamic terrorism and tried to be systematic about uh, gathering information about their publications, what they were saying uh, to their own people, as well as uh, the more open public declarations, and and statistics, how how many people are joining these movements. Uh, And then by 2011, which was timed then for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, put it all together in a book to ask uh, the sort of counterintuitive question, which is why didn't we see more of the terrorism that we were afraid would happen after 9-11, that we were bracing ourselves for? Uh, We didn't end up seeing these waves of mass attacks, very fortunately. Uh, Part of that is because of law enforcement and because of military operations. Uh, But a huge part of it is that that Muslims themselves were not interested in this kind of revolutionary violence. And so I uh, described uh, in the book the, the debates within Islam where Muslims are mobilizing in huge numbers against revolutionary violence and some of the cultural and theological and other sorts of trends that are countering the call, the recruitment uh, to violence. So the book came out in 2011, and it got a little bit of attention, but we've still remained in the United States uh, really s- much more afraid of terrorism than the numbers would seem to warrant. The actual odds of being victimized by an act of, of uh, terrorism are really, really low, and yet many, many people in the United States say that they fear that they or a family member are going to be a victim of terrorism. And then, of course, politically, you have movements that are playing on these fears exaggerating these fears, stimulating these fears, and getting people uh, uh, to vote for candidates and policies uh, that are really out of scale, out of of sync with the actual numbers. Hmm. So since the book came out, uh, uh, of course, we had the rise of the Islamic State, the so-called self-proclaimed Islamic State uh, based in Syria. And uh, a fair number of acts of violence associated uh, with support for for, uh, their caliphate that they declared, self-appointed caliph. 
which the huge majority of Muslims around the world don't recognize as uh, an Islamic leader, as a political leader. They don't support. And yet there were uh, fringe groups who, who did support it and engaged in violence. And of course, the, the huge amount of fear that that generated, uh, which is the intention of terrorism, is to create terror, is to sow terror. So I had to, felt I, I, I should update the book. Uh, the Islamic State did not exist as such uh, in 2011 when the first edition came out. And so uh, proposed to the uh, publisher that we do an updated edition, and they went for it. Uh, and the conclusions, of course, the details, I wanted to get into the debates around the uh, Islamic State. But the details are different, but the big picture is pretty much the same, which is we did not see the massive uh, outpouring of violence that many people told us to expect. And so trying to bring evidence to bear on our public discussions, on our political discussions about violent extremism, uh, about Islam and Muslims. Uh, can't we bring evidence back into these conversations uh, and not just, uh, you know, have the, 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 the public discourse be all about these irrational, exaggerated fears? It's hard. It is. Uh, and I'm not sure the evidence and reality are winning. Uh, I mean, we've seen just in recent weeks uh, with the, the commotion over whether to build a border wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, one of the stated reasons for building the wall, according to the administration, is because terrorists are streaming over the border. That just isn't true. There have been zero fatalities by violent extremists who've come over the, uh, uh, the border from Mexico into the United States. It's just really, really rare hasn't occurred, and yet it's become somehow part of mainstream political conversation. So I think we need evidence more than ever on these touchy topics. It's really interesting to see the way national security has, has been redefined in the past quarter century, past generation. So during the Cold War, national security meant defense against nuclear warheads on intercontinental ballistic missiles and armies, you know, with a million soldiers. So the Soviet Union was the primary national security threat to the United States. If you look at the, uh, the, the, the last Cold War national security strategies of the United States put out by the White House. So under President Reagan, national security meant nuclear, defending against nuclear annihilation. Then after 9-11, so that, that becomes, that recedes after the Cold War. And then after 9-11, you see in the national security strategies under the George W. Bush administration that it's no longer these nuclear arsenals and, and uh, delivery, intercontinental delivery systems. Instead, it's the potential for states, rogue states, or non-governmental organizations like al-Qaeda to get weapons of mass destruction and engage in attacks on a mass scale like 9-11. So it's no longer having the weapons, but the potential for getting the weapons. Already national security has, has been uh, uh, defined down to the potential, not the actual. Mm. And then more recently, the latest national security strategies are not even about 
weapons of mass destruction, large-scale international uh, uh, conspiracies. It's about the potential radicalization of lone wolves, of isolated individuals who aren't soldiers, who don't have weapons of mass destruction or missiles or whatnot. It, what they're doing is um, using uh, small arms, uh, using vehicles to run people over, uh, knives, uh, homemade explosives. These are terrible. I mean, it's not like I'm saying it, it, th these are okay things to do. These are violent crimes. My point is they're not the Soviet army. And our sense of national security threat has been defined to the point where any troubled individual can drive across the sidewalk, call it uh, jihad, and that's defined as a national security threat. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like we've, we've made ourselves more, feel more insecure by defining national security in a way that is so much broader than it used to be. When those would just be considered, you know, ideologically motivated violent crimes, and not the premier national security threats the way they're listed today in our in our policy documents. Yeah, I see. So, yeah, it feels so much more localized. Like even if one thing happens across the country or in its one instance, it feels like it's going to happen to you immediately. I feel like it's it's kind of how the media or it might seem, you know, the news is kind of circulating those events, which is that totally makes sense to me. Yeah, we certainly have a uh, 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 really bizarre reinforcing interplay between acts of violence that are ideologically motivated and this new information, media, technologies, and culture where we hear about things much faster than we used to. We hear about more things. We hear about the relatively local extreme stuff in a way that we wouldn't have a generation ago. And so we get more scared by it. Uh, it's it, it's interesting the way that plays into the goals and strategies of people who want to sow terror among the population, that there's kind of a, a symbiotic relationship between their goals and the goals of news media and social media, which is to gain attention, gain viewers, gain clicks, and doing the job of terrorists for them, which is getting their message out, getting the fear out, uh, it, it's it's hard to tell a journalist don't cover something when all the other journalists are going to go run and cover it. Uh, but they ought to be aware, I think, of the role they're playing in this whole dynamic of, of serving the interests of these extremists. You have a report that's due later this month. Uh, how does that tie to the book and kind of your research as a whole? Yeah, this annual report comes out in January and reports on the activities of, uh, related to violent extremism among Muslims around the United States. And uh, sometimes the report has gotten some attention. Uh, for example, a couple years ago, the report happened to come out the same week that the uh, travel ban was announced by the new uh, then incoming Trump administration, which uh, uh, suspended visas uh, to... Um, people from six, uh, ultimately seven, Muslim-majority uh, countries. And I happened to have in the data set that I had created information on all of the Muslim-American uh, terrorism suspects uh, and the, was able to see that there had been zero fatalities by extremists from those countries. Uh, 
And so I put that in the report and I wrote an op-ed online and it got picked up in the uh, news media and in the public conversation. It was, it was gratifying to see this bit of research translate into the public conversation and the political conversation. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it didn't end up mattering. That is, the, the, the travel ban went into effect. It was ultimately, although it had almost no evidentiary basis, was uh, considered uh, legitimate by the Supreme Court. And so we currently have uh, here at UNC and uh, all around the country people from these countries who are students and our colleagues who are not sure if they leave the U.S. whether they'll be allowed back in hmm. because the, the, the extra scrutiny uh, that they, their visas get now um, because of this new policy. Very unfortunate. I, and so the, the, this year's report is um, uh, going to be tracking this, uh, the, the decline that we've seen in the number of Muslim Americans involved in violent extremism. Uh, the number went up somewhat during the height of the Islamic State's uh, recruitment appeals. Uh, there were just over 80 uh, incidents or arrests um, in 2015 at the height, and really most of them in the first half of 2015. And since then, the numbers have been dropping considerably. So each year, it's gone down by about half. Uh, and so I'm tracking that in the report and then trying to, uh, well, first juxtaposing that with the really hyperbolic uh, claims of threat and danger coming from the Trump administration, but also trying to explain the decline. And so I have done a uh, survey of terrorism experts uh, around the United States to ask them why do they think the numbers have gone down so dramatically, starting in the second half of 2015, again in 2016, and then continuing in 2017 and 18. And it's interesting. So part of it is they feel that the loss of territory by the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria has reduced the uh, potential for mobilization uh, recruitment by folks over there. Uh, and has also sort of taken the sheen off of uh, the appeal of what a movement, a revolutionary movement that seemed more on the verge of success back then than it does now. Another thing they mentioned is that the numbers are so small that the variation from year to year can be, all it takes is a relatively small number of people, a few people to make a big percentage-wise difference. So out of a population of three million Muslims, if we're talking about uh, seven dozen going down to uh, two dozen or one dozen, uh, it, it's not a huge difference in absolute numbers. Yes. I have one last question, and it's a lighter one and a pretty easy one for some. Um, it is, what's a book that changed your life? <laughs> well, uh, in honor of James Billington, the recently deceased former Librarian of Congress, I'll mention uh, one of his books. It's called Fire in the Minds of Men. And he was a Russia specialist, a historian, before he became a uh, Librarian of Congress. And this book came out maybe around 1980, and I read it in college in the 1980s and was just really impressed and inspired by it because it looks at 
the global flow of revolutionary ideas in the 19th century in ways that really struck me as, uh, as, as just so smart, uh, that the ways in which the ideas of the French Revolution and of Masonic organization, the, the Masons, the Freemasons, organized themselves into cells that then became the carriers of these ideological revolutionary movements and then globalized. And so he traces the global spread uh, with a focus on Europe, but really uh, uh, not just focusing on a single country and the way in which organizational structure and ideology uh, come together to create a new era of revolutionary mobilization. And uh, what I thought was so fascinating about it was that he, he'd learned all these languages, which was very cool. And so he was reporting across borders, and he was starting to approximate in the study and in the scope of the study the cosmopolitanism of the people he was studying, who were also often multilingual, they traveled, they were influenced by and uh, in contact with people from other countries from all around the world. And I, I, I worry that academic specialties, and uh, as a, even as a college student in the classes I was taking, where you study one country or one region without realizing that the people you're studying are themselves far more cosmopolitan than that. And so I took his book as a, as a model for work that I wanted to do in my own career that would look across um, multiple national settings, to look globally, and to follow the, the, the people I'm studying wherever their minds went and wherever they traveled, uh, to give a more, I think, accurate representation of people's lives and the ways that we've been interconnected, not just in the digital era, but for the past two centuries or more. I definitely see that connection in your research. It's been a pleasure. I feel like I learned a lot. So thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you very much. This has been fun. Great. Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.